Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. But it's also more than just about fish. You see it in the number of the fish they haul in, 153. Now, I'm not going to get into this right now, but if you're interested, come with me afterwards, and I'll tell you why this is. It's in the number, this 153. But you see it last in the words John uses to describe this scene. And you've got to follow me here, okay? Just follow me, and you're going to see this like I don't imagine you've seen before. You see that this, this picture of the disciples going fishing is more about fish in the words that John uses to describe it. Some have pointed out that in these first 14 verses of this last chapter, there's three different words behind what we translate fish. So all those fish that show up in this passage, there's actually three different words behind those. And some have gone so far as to suggest that this speaks to the author's familiarity with the fishing industry, right? Which some of you will draw the connection there with who the guy is who might have written these things. The problem, though, is that of these three words that we translate for fish, only one of them actually means fish. And so it's not about his familiarity with the fishing industry. So when Jesus asks his question, to begin with in verse 5, what he asks for is something nondescript. Did you catch anything? The word isn't actually fish. Then in verse 10, he'll ask Peter to bring some of the stuff that he's caught to throw on the fire. And he's actually in the process of cooking some stuff himself. Which is probably fish, but that's not what John says. It's just stuff. They're just catching something. So that it's only, the effect is, is that it's only when John has us staring at that mysteriously untorn net that he actually starts talking about fish. And that's more interesting than you might think. Because the word here he uses is ichthus. Now say it with me. Ichthus. That's your Greek word for the day. Ichthus. And it's a, a perfectly good word for fish. Ichthus. Iota, chi, theta, upsilon, sigma. Some of you from your frat days may know those symbols. Those are Greek letters. This is a five-letter word in Greek and a perfectly good word for fish. But a word for John and for, for all of those that he was writing to that had come to mean a whole lot more. Say it with me. Ichthus. You see, the Gospel of John was written at, or at least published, at a sufficiently late date that, that John was able to reflect on a few things that had developed in Christianity that Matthew, Mark, and Luke probably couldn't have reflected on. And, and one of them has to do with this word ichthus. Because by the time John wrote this gospel, ichthus wasn't just a word that meant fish. It was a word that meant follower, particularly a follower of Jesus. See, it was an acronym very early in, in church history. It was an acronym 
that stood for, for this, Iota, the first letter of Jesus' name, Jesus. Chi, Christos, or Christ, Jesus the Christ. Theta Upsilon, Son of God. Sigma, the Savior of the world. Did you get that? Ichthus, Iota, Jesus, Chi, Christos, Theta Upsilon, the Son of God, Sigma, the Savior of the world, which for those of us who were here last week should sound vaguely familiar from what John said the whole purpose of this gospel was, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who he identifies much earlier in the book as the Savior of the world. Now that's interesting. That's interesting. Because John, in this story of catching fish, isn't just talking about fish. Ichthus, more than just a fish word, became a follower word. And it's why if you go out into the parking lot after the service, you're probably going to see on the back of somebody's bumper, placard, a fish. This became very early in, in Christianity, a universal symbol for what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Somebody who had believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And it's in this net that didn't break with those 153 fish that, that we're called as followers to cast the net and to let Jesus do the catching. Catch those who would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But let me say that just because this story here is about being fishers of men doesn't mean that there's a problem here with fishing for fish. That's not what's at issue. As if gone fishing marked a sort of backsliding for Peter and everyone who followed him. That his earthly calling as a fisherman and his eternal calling as a fisher of men were somehow mutually exclusive options. Or that we're all, when we come to Christ, meant to drop everything and join the ministry. Or if you don't join the ministry, that you're somehow a less than follower. That's not what this means. Fishing for fish isn't the problem. Except if in fishing for fish, you're not also fishing for something more. Because as a fisherman, or as a a butcher, or baker, or candlestick maker, as a mom even, your earthly vocation or calling under God, what you've been made for, whatever that is, should not be separated from your eternal vocation that you've been called to in Christ. And that's why for some of you, your job right now is more than a little disappointing. Because what you do for a living is supposed to be subsumed under what you do living for Jesus. I saw this as a kid and no one, no one better I saw this in my dad. My dad worked for the government, sort of rose in the ranks of the Federal Aviation Administration and, and, and gained for himself a pretty good reputation bringing home the bacon, fishing for fish. 
But I remember as a kid, there was not a moment in my childhood that I, that I thought that my dad was giving up the mission of Christ to take up the mission of man. And I remember those bring your son to work days. I remember going, and my dad had this long rectangular office and two desks, one at either end. And I used to sit at the one at the farther end of the room for eight hours in this, in this office and watch man after man come in for these supervisory meetings. And all through the day, my dad, without fail, would have cracked open on his desk a Bible. And somehow, in these supervisory meetings, by one way or another, my dad would constantly drive the conversation towards Jesus. Fishing for men while he was fishing for fish. See, this final chapter of John's gospel doesn't only verify the faith with Jesus' resurrection appearances, but commissions the faithful to the work of to which we've been called. And the story of the cross that really spans this gospel from beginning to end challenges us to think fresh about how our faith in Christ intersects with our work in this world. Because far be it from us if our work isn't similarly transformed as it was for those first disciples way back when. As the Dutch prime minister of the past century put, he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So what are you doing as you're fishing for fish? Are you also fishing for men? But following Jesus isn't just about catching fish. It's second about feeding sheep. And the transition from catching fish to feeding sheep is marked with this passing reference to a charcoal fire. Did you see it as we were reading through the passage? This passing reference to a charcoal fire fire in verse 9. And it's important to know that there's only two references to this kind of fire in the whole Bible. And both of them are in John. One of them's here in verse 9. And the other one is back in chapter 18. Around which, if you remember, a number of servants and officers of the high priest were warming themselves as Jesus was unjustly tried, and around which also Peter kept warm right before he denied Jesus for the third time. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because you can imagine the, the, how heart-wrenching it would have been for, for Peter, who was just a few minutes before fishing naked out in a boat, and then throws on his clothes and throws himself headlong into the lake just to get to shore to see Jesus. And now he comes up out of the water, dripping wet, head to toe, stumbling onto the shore, and comes face to face with the one who just a few days before he had denied. And for a moment, they're the only two around, 
staring at one another in what I imagine was a rather awkward silence. Only broken by the crackling of this charcoal fire. And he looks down. And he sees a fire just like the one he had last been around that fateful night not long before. I don't know how you've denied Jesus. All I know is that you have at some point. This story ought to be a great comfort. But this scene, as it transitions from catching fish to feeding sheep, isn't so much about the aching reminder of how far we fall, but about how far God goes to bring us back again and how he uses even our shortcomings for his service. Look at this. Three times Peter denied Christ, and with three questions, Jesus brings him back. But I want to show you in this a point that that I imagine many of us haven't seen before. If you're not familiar with the story, it might not mean much, but some of us may have heard that love in this section of the chapter, love in this section of the chapter actually translates two different words in Greek. So after breakfast, Jesus quite abruptly cuts to the chase in verse 15 and asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he's talking there about the disciples because this is what Peter proclaimed before he had denied Jesus, that I love you more than any of them. They may fall away, but not me. I'm going to stick with you to the end until until he fell away too. So Jesus says, do you love me more than these? And the word here is agape. Some of you will have heard it. It's another Greek word. So you get two today. I'm actually going to throw a third one at you in a minute. Do you agape me? And this is the unconditional love of God. It's the love that we see at the beginning of John's gospel. For God so loved the world. For God so agaped the world that he gave his only son. He didn't have to do it. We didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. It's an unconditional love. So Jesus asks, do you agape me? To which Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Not that I agape you, as you asked, but that I phileo you. That's your third Greek word for the day. This is a lot, right? There's a lot of Greek words. They're important, though, I think, in this context especially, because they say a lot about what's happening here. Do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. It's, a, it's the word we get Philadelphia from. It's a brotherly love. It, it's a bonded affection. Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I love you, not just unconditionally, but with the affection of a brother. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Jesus asks again, do you agape me? To which Peter replies, I phileo you. Tend my sheep. But despite popular opinion, Peter isn't somehow trying to to lower the stakes here. Do you agape me? Well, not quite. Can we go here? Halfway. I phileo you. 
That's not what Peter's doing. That would be kind of ridiculous because actually a sentence later in Jesus' third question, he finally lowers the stakes then too. Do you phileo me? That's not what Peter's doing. He's not somehow trying to lower the stakes as if he can't muster the agape love Jesus is looking for. So he's somehow seeing if they can, again, meet halfway, settle for this brotherly sort of love instead. Neither is Jesus when he asks, do you actually phileo me? Rather, it's as if Peter, the whole time in this whole conversation, is trying to push past the past. Come on, you and I would do the same thing, right? Three times you denied Jesus. You finally show up on a beach with him, and he asks you, do you love me unconditionally? I phileo you. It's more than that. It's more. Do you love me? Just love me. Just plain love me. It's more. I promise it's more. To which Jesus says, is it really more? It's not even really this. You never love me like you should. You never do what you ought. You certainly don't do this. Because Jesus is saying, we no longer are the ones who can make this right again. You can't push through the past. You can't somehow start over as if you're going to do it better the next time around. Because this, do, this, isn't, this isn't something you fall into, denying Jesus in your day to day. This is something that flows out of you. This is who you are. And so the whole gospel is not about you making right again what you made wrong. It's about Jesus doing what only Jesus can because only Jesus can do it. And so on the other end of that, the request, the demand, the expectation is not even that you love Jesus as you ought, but simply the question, simply whether or not you will follow him in catching fish and feeding sheep. Don't tell me anymore that you love me. I want to see whether my love transforms you to do what I did for you as you do it for others. It says in verse 17 that Peter was grieved when Jesus asked, do you phileo me? And I think it's because no matter how much he wanted to, he knew he would always fall short. And the point is this, we cannot go back and just love Jesus as we should have from the very beginning. The brokenness that we're born into when we're born into this world is a brokenness we perpetuate in our own lives and we deny him three times 3,000 before we even know the one that we're denying. But the point of the gospel is that this is no longer about what we do for Jesus, but about what Jesus has done for us. And now, it's no longer about our going back to make our wrongs right again. It's a question of whether his love in the shadow of the cross and the wake of the empty tomb 
pushes us to go fishing for men and whether we follow him in feeding sheep. This is the ending of the Gospel of John. A picture of two disciples in particular who end up following Jesus in very different ways but doing very much the same thing at that time. Peter, who will die for Jesus, go to a cross on his own, follow Jesus in more than just life. And the one who wrote this gospel, who did his own feeding of sheep, catching of fish by the penning of the story of Jesus. This is the ending of the gospel that draws out the implications of the gospel and is meant to ignite your imagination to live differently in this world to which you must return. But the ending of this gospel is actually the beginning for our church. And that's why we introduced last week this new vision statement of who we want to be as a church. And I want to close by just going back to that. Anybody remember what we talked about last week? Anybody remember the tagline? That we want to be a church following Jesus by growing Jesus' followers. And we said last week that to do that, it's really, we do that in three ways. We do that first by loving Jesus, second, by loving Jesus' followers, and third, by loving this world that Jesus loves so much. So first, we do it by loving Jesus, because you can't grow Jesus' followers if you're not first growing as a follower yourself. It ain't going to happen. It shouldn't happen. You shouldn't be the one growing Jesus' followers or even taking part in that. So first, you've got to grow as a follower yourself. So, so, so how you doing in your walk? How you doing? What's, what's taking up your time and eating up your attention? Is it all about Jesus? Are you finding more and more that it's all about yourself? It's all about you and what you want and where you're headed. Because you follow Jesus first by loving Jesus most. And Jesus is asking, do you love me? But we follow Jesus second by loving Jesus' followers. By, by feeding sheep. That's what we're called to do. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. By, by pointing others to what we found in him. So as much as Jesus asks, do you love me? He says immediately after, do this. Feed my sheep. And each of us ought to be doing that no matter where we are in our walk with him. If you've started a relationship with Jesus, immediately it becomes your responsibility. And what ought to be flowing out of you is just the overflow of all that Jesus has already done for you, a feeding of Jesus' sheep. There's always someone you can feed. And the way I like to think about it is each one teaching one. Teaching what it means to follow Jesus, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like. Teaching each other, each one teaching one. So who is your sheep? Who is your sheep? Who are you pouring into? Because we follow Jesus second by loving Jesus' followers. But we follow him third by loving this world that Jesus loves so much. So while feeding sheep, 
we're also supposed to be catching fish. And while we want each one teaching one, we also want each one reaching one. Who's the one? Who's the fish you're going after? Some of you may not fish with a net. Some of you may be one of the pole. Emma and I made a fishing pole the other day. Didn't even have a reel on it. That's okay. That's not the point. But who are you reaching for Jesus? Just like Jesus came down to reach you. Who's your fish? Who's your sheep? And how are you doing following Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, that the gospel of John did not end at John 20, verse 31. As important as that is to, to know that this gospel was written, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That you then, in your perfect providence, drew that out as John penned the words to John 21. I pray through this as, as the gospel of John, this journey we've been on, settles in our hearts. I pray that each of us would see with new eyes not only the truth that Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, but that the implications for this is that we would live a life catching fish, and feeding sheep to the glory of him who we follow in them. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.